Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 10 through 17. Ephesians 6, 10. <clears throat> Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all things, taking the shield of faith, which is able to quench or extinguish the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Father, Lord God, wake us up this morning to the reality of the spiritual warfare that you have called us to be engaged in. God, there is an onslaught from the enemy against your word against your people. And Father, this is nothing new. This was written 2,000 years ago. And throughout history, the Christian church has retreated. The Christian church has compromised. And now, Lord, in many places, it is nearly non-existent. And God... I pray for North Valley Bible Church, Lord. I pray for the true body of Christ in America. Lord God, I pray that as your people and as, as we sense the evil day is on us, that God, we would stand. Lord, we pray this. We pray for your strength in Jesus' name. Amen. You might may be seated. I've got a rather lengthy introduction this morning, and I'll probably cut some of it out, but um, the enemy and his attacks, they, they've not changed throughout the course of, of of time, and it, it started in the garden, didn't it? Um, 
and then even prior to that, Isaiah chapter 14 tells us that the enemy's attack started before probably the creation of the world. Satan. He's, he, the word Satan means adversary. That's what it literally means. Um, but the early church, they faced unparalleled persecution. And they stood. And there's individuals that we have their testimonies of them standing. And I just want to ask the question this morning, are we ready to stand? I've been reading this week from Open Doors testimonials of believers in Afghanistan and in North Korea. And I was having a, a conversation I think it was with Keith on Wednesday night on how cavalier we can be about thinking that we would stand if we were persecuted. I, I'm squeamish. <laughs> you know, you start poking with my fingers and, and uh, or whatever. I've watched the video and, and read the book twice. Um, Richard Wormbrand. And, and I like to think that I would have that kind of courage. But I'm not going to presume it for one minute. To be able to, to love your persecutors, to pray for them, to cry over their souls... I don't even do that for people that rub me the wrong way. I don't even have that kind of love, that kind of compassion. So I, I think we in America, we just we need to we need to come a long way back to biblical Christianity. And this week I was reading a story, not a recent story, but one during the 100 A.D.s. And it was in North Africa. The, the church in North Africa, it was exploding. It was growing so rapidly. And last Sunday, I talked about the, the huge slave population in the Roman Empire. And the gospel was sweeping through that segment of the population in the Roman Empire. Slaves had no rights. They were not even thought as people. They were thought as property. And the message of Jesus Christ was that you are no longer a slave. You are free in Christ. Masters were converting to Christianity because, as it says in the book of Titus, they were no longer serving their masters with eye service as men pleasers. They were no longer purloining, old King James, or pilfering, I can't say either one of those words. <laughs> and they were, the King James says, they were adorning, adorning cosmetics. That's the word that's used there for adorning. And we know how important that is for some of our ladies. <laughs> As men, we ought to probably partake in the same sometimes. But we can adorn the gospel 
And that's what slaves were doing. And masters were being converted. And in North Africa, in Carthage, a slave named Felicitas, she converted to Christianity and she served a noble woman. And this noble woman was born into the lap of luxury. And, and, and during that time, Roman fathers, if a girl child was born, he could decide whether that child was going to live or die. He could just leave it exposed. That's how cruel and how, how little value there were to women. And women were coming to the gospel and coming to Jesus and being liberated. And Paul would write things like, in Christ Jesus there's neither male nor female that we are one in Christ. And these women were saying, yes, in the God of Israel, in the God of Jesus Christ, we are recognized and we are whole and we are people with dignity. And Christianity was exploding. And I can't pronounce the emperor's name. It's two S's. And so forgive me for not being able to remember or to pronounce his name, but he saw Christianity growing so rapidly in the empire, and he says, I've got to stop this because people need to worship me, and these Christians will simply not do it. And North Africa is the worst place, so I'm going to crack down on Christianity. And so they knew where house churches were, and they knew when they were preparing for baptism. That's when they were the most vulnerable. And so they came in, Roman soldiers, early in the morning, preparing for a baptismal service, and a woman and her slave, not just Felicity, but she had led her master, this young girl who was spared by her father, and the father just, he adored this little baby girl. In fact, he treated her better than her brothers, and he, he, do, he would do anything for her, and she converted to Christianity. Her name was Perpetua. She's arrested along with this entire house church. The father hears about it. He runs to the prison cells. He says, Perpetua, you know how I adore you. You know how I treated you better than all of your brothers. I would do anything for you. Please, I beg you, just do sacrifice to the emperor. You can continue on in your faith, and you can continue on doing all the things that you want to do. Just give the sacrifice. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to, 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 to take this on... on on that you really believe this, but just do this for me. Have mercy on my gray head. And not only my gray head, but have mercy on your infant child that was just born. And the father brought her infant child for her to suckle in prison. He says, what will happen to your child? Think and give up your pride. She turned and there was a vase in the corner and she says, Father, what is this? He says, it's a vase. He says, she said, can I call it by any other name and it make any sense at all? He says, no, of course not. He says, neither can I call myself anything other than what I am. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. The governor called them in and he said, one by one, will you renounce Christ and give sacrifice to the emperor? One by one, they all denied. The father heard that the trial was going on and he ran again. And he pleads in front of the governor, please, Papetra, please simply have mercy on me and your child. What will you do? And she said, 
God is with me and He will take care of me and I will see my child again. He, he fell at her feet and, and the, the, the governor said, get this man out of here. And they, they began to beat him. And, the, and then the governor looked to Perpetua and he says, is this what you want for your father? And again she said, I love my father, but I love my Lord Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. He is my King. He is my God. I will sacrifice to no other. He gave the death sentence to her. They marched them out into the arena. Gladiators, beasts out there, began to, to shred her. A, a wild bull came into the midst of them, threw her into the air, ripped her garments, and because of her, her desire for modesty, she took her ripped rags and just wrapped them around her body. And then the leopards began to tear at her and tear at the other ones. And the crowd in the, the amphitheater just screamed for more blood. This is history. This is reality. This is what the Christian church has faced throughout time. Are we ready to stand in America? That's the question that I want to pose to us today. Well, how can we stand? What does God require? What, what does He ask of us? Well, the only strength that you and I have, the only strength that you and I have is found in Christ's victory and His death, His burial, His resurrection. That is it. I have no strength of my own. The Apostle Paul pleaded for God to take away the thorn of the flesh, and God said, my strength, my strength is made perfect in weakness. You and I need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that He might exalt us in due time. And Paul starts out this little paragraph with the word, finally. The word finally is drawing attention to something very, very important. Paul uses this at the end of his letters to draw out that this is something that I want you to really lay hold of. He uses it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 where he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will run swiftly and have free course and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we might be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all men have faith. And so when he uses that word finally at the end of a letter, he's saying, I want you to really understand this. Before I close this letter, before this, this thought is done, before you move on, I want you to get this and I want you to be grounded in this. Finally, finally, my brethren, be strong. It's a compound word in the original language, and it literally means to be empowered, endued. I'm not going to sell any bad jokes. <laughs> endued. It's used in Luke chapter 24 and verse 49, where Jesus, the same word to be strengthened, it's a a passive voice verb, which doesn't mean that the, the subject is passive. It means that the subject is being acted upon. I need to receive the power of Christ. And Jesus knew this, and he says, before you leave Jerusalem, before you go out on this mission, you wait. You wait until you are endued. It's the exact same Greek word. From power on, on high, and on the day of Pentecost, the church, they were told to wait. 
They were told to be strengthened. They were told to be endued. And finally, my brethren, we are to be empowered. We are to receive the empowerment. And then we've got the preposition in two more times in this verse. So endued, empowered, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. All of our strength resides in Jesus Christ. He is the victory. He is the victor. He is the one who has conquered death. Hebrews chapter 2, he says this, You and I are partakers of flesh and blood. Jesus likewise took part of the same, that through death he might what? Destroy the power of the devil. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You and I are more than conquerors through Christ. If he did not withhold his only son, how much more will he not freely give us all things? We are overcomers in the name of Jesus. And if we are going to stand, we must understand that our strength resides in the person of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, I want you to know the exceeding greatness of his power, the exceeding greatness of a power according to his glorious might, which he worked in you. When did he do that? When he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. You and I are united in the likeness of his death, and you and I are united in the likeness of his resurrection. Romans chapter 6. That is where our power... So if we ever hope to stand, we can only stand in the power of Jesus Christ. And secondly, we can only stand with his armor on. Verse 12. Put on the whole armor of God. The whole armor of God. What is the whole armor? It's the Greek word, and we have the English word. I didn't even... You know, I, I don't have a very big vocabulary, and preaching is helping me a lot because I learned all these new words. Um, but the Greek word is panoplia. And I didn't even know there was a Greek, an English word, panoply. Some of you are a lot smarter, you probably knew that. But the Greek word planoplia means the entire armament. The English word means the complete assortment, the complete array, and the impressive magnitude of something. That's where we get our English word panoply. Pan is the Greek word for all, and apli means armament. And we are to put on the entire. We can't lack a single piece. And as I was reading it this week and studying it and meditating on it, I, it just it dawned on me like, like God was just giving me a neon sign that says, Patrick, every, every part needs to be put on. Because Satan, he knows your weakness. He knows where you're deficient, and that is where he's going to attack you. So if I'm going to stand, I've got to have every single piece on. Let's read the rest of the verse. Verse 12. The purpose is that you may be able to stand, and stand against what? The Greek word for wiles is methods. Satan has got a lot of different methods that he uses to defeat you and I. And if I'm going to stand, I need to be aware of what his methods are. And so I'm going to give you 
a big picture and then a small picture. The big picture of Satan's methods. His number one, and I, 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 I believe that the scripture will, will support this, his number one is imitation. Satan wants to come and he wants to imitate God. And he does that through religion. In the garden, he says, you can be like God. That is his method. That is the way he wants to defeat you and I. It's through imitation. What did Satan say in Isaiah chapter 14? And let me just read it for you. Isaiah chapter 14. For thou hast said in thy heart, talking about Satan, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit upon the mountain of the congregation. I will sit on the sides of the north. I will ascend into the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Satan wants to imitate exactly what God is doing and put it out there like it's wonderful. The New Age movement is nothing but the Old Age movement. That you can, make, that you can be your own God. This is the way Satan... He, and the other way that he, he, he attacks us, the other broad way, it's through what I call infiltration. This is how Satan has destroyed Christianity in America. It's through infiltration. False teachers, false pastors, false apostles, those who do not know Christ and they have worked their way into the church of the living God and have destroyed denominations. You look at all the mainline denominations in America and almost every one of them has gone liberal and apostate. And I'm not exaggerating. And I could name them all and tell you how they've apostatized. And there's nothing special about being non-denominational. Because non-denominational churches have done the exact same thing. Don't confuse non-denominational with non-doctrinal. We might be non-denominational at North Valley Bible Church, but we better never become non-doctrinal. Because the minute we do, Satan will infiltrate this church with lies. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing that his ministers also transform themselves into the ministers of righteousness. Now this is where the rubber starts to meet the road. Because this is, gets really practical and applicable to every one of us. Because I've, I've, I've listed five, there's probably a lot more, but five specific attacks and wiles that Satan will hit you and I at. Hopefully, you and I are discerning enough that we can see the imitation, right? Hopefully, you and I are discerning enough and we know our Bibles well enough. Listen to me, high school boys who sit in Dennis's class. You guys had better be wise enough to know the infiltration. 80% of our high school students go off to college and they repudiate their faith because they don't know their truth. So you high school kids, just because you're growing up in a Christian home and because you're in Sunday school, you have got to take ownership of your Christian faith. 
You've got to, young people. You're old enough, okay? Enough of my scolding. <laughs> All right. What are the five things that Satan does? What are his wiles? I think his number one tactic for us that we need to be aware of is division because of broken relationships within our church. This is where Satan is going to attack us. Paul knew it in Ephesians. He says, be angry, but sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give opportunity, neither give place for the devil. That's where he's going to attack us. That's where he's going to hit us. He's going to bring division through relationships and divide us. And we need to be ready. We need to have the entire armor of God, every single piece. And we're going to list through those pieces, and we're going to describe them, we're going to tell them what they are, so that those relationships are not broken. A second area is questioning the character and the goodness of God. That's what Satan wants to do. In the garden, what did he say? Did God really say this? Did God say that you can't eat from every tree of the garden? Your God is really not good. Your God is wanting to hold something from you. So Satan is going to attack us by questioning the character and the goodness and the authority of God's word. A third area, it's immediate gratification. I don't want to wait to do it God's way. I want this right now. And I might compromise my integrity. I might compromise my purity. I might compromise such and such because I don't esteem the riches of following Jesus greater than the riches that I've got right now in this present worldly life. That's the way Satan will attack you. That's what he did with Jesus in the garden. Immediate gratification. Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. If you will simply bow down and worship me now, I'll give you all those kingdoms. You don't need the cross. And that's what Satan is telling our young people. Don't follow God's way. I'll give it to you right now. And that's the way he'll attack us the same way. Get impatient. You want a big church? You want more people to come? You start watering down the messages. and Maybe people start coming and liking what you're saying. You tell people that, they, that God wants them healthy, wealthy, prosperous. Yeah, you can pack a pew that way. And instead of doing it God's way. A fourth area is pride. Satan will attack you through your pride. David knew this, and he stumbled anyway. It tells us in 2 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1 that Satan rose up against David and provoked him to number the nation of Israel. How big is my army? How big is my kingdom? How vast have I arrayed for myself? And Satan used that to destroy part of the city of Jerusalem because of David's pride. And the last way that Satan will attack you and I, and I think this is so common in our church, is through shame. I'm, I, God, God can't use me. I've done such and such. I had a bad week this week. There's people that don't come to church because they 
feel embarrassed about the way they live their life. This is the first place you need to be, not the last place. Glad I got an amen. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 3. Zerubbabel. I'm sorry, Joshua. Get those names. Joshua the high priest. He was clothed with dirty and filthy garments, and he felt the shame. And God said to the angel of the Lord, take away those filthy garments and give him clean robes. You don't need to sense. Keith and I had an interesting conversation this week, and we talked about there is therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Yes, I am not under any condemnation, but there is a good side of feeling guilt. And the good side of feeling guilt, it drives you to the cross. And you confess your sin. And you acknowledge your sin. And what is God faithful and just to do? You know it. To cleanse you and to forgive you from all unrighteousness. You don't have to continue to walk in shame. And you know what? The more Christ forgives, the more Christ gives you grace, the more you will love Him. Grace is never a license, a ticket just to live how you want to. In fact, every time I blow it and God forgives me, that gives me one more motivative, uh, motivation to just serve Him all the more. So I continue to sin so that grace could abound. God forbid, may it never be. How will we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? So those are the five schemes of the devil. Now the reason that we need His strength is found in verse 12 and 13. Why do we need the armor? Why do we need his strength? Because you and I are fighting an unseen enemy. And he is wily. And he is powerful. And he will dupe us into thinking that he is not even there. I was reading a book this week called Tsunami, written by one of our members. Dan Cook has written a book on the waves that are going to attack the American church. And in his book, he gives an illustration I thought was pretty pretty telling. What does Satan want to do? How can Satan defeat us? And there was three demons having a sort of a chat, saying, I know how I can defeat those Christians. I'll tell them that there's no heaven, and they'll just feel like, what's the use? Another demon says, no, no, that's not going to work. I'll tell them there's no hell. No, hell, I, you know, I can just live however I want to. And the third demon says, I've got the best idea. I'm going to convince them that I don't exist. We are wrestling an unseen enemy. And most of the time as Christians, we don't even realize and we don't even practically believe that he is there. But we are to be sober. We are to be vigilant. For our enemy is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Therefore, resist him steadfastly in the faith. If I resist the devil, he will flee. If I draw close unto God, he will draw unto me. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. And lift up those hands of the Lord, those weak knees that were shaken. May they be strengthened and may you walk in the power of Christ. But we've got to acknowledge that there is an enemy out there and he's unseen. And you know what? We've got unseen forces to protect us. Elisha knew that. The Syrian king. I love the story. I've got a spy in the camp. 
Every time I put my camp up, the king of Israel knows where we're at. Which one of you guys are a spy? And they said, none of us are spies, but God's got a Holy Spirit prophet named Elisha, and wherever you put the camp, God knows where it's at, and he tells the prophet Elisha, he says, let's go get him. <laughs> and so Elisha looks out the window, and he says, "Woo, we're surrounded by the entire Syrian army. And his servant says, what are we going to do, alas? He says, there's more with us than with him. He says, what are you talking about? There's the two of us. He says, God opened his eyes. And the mountainside was filled with chariots of fire of the angels of the Lord. We're told in the book of Hebrews that God has given you and I ministering spirits. We have an unseen force surrounding you and I to fight this unseen foe. So I need to be strong in the Lord. I need to be strong in the power of His might. I need the entire army of God because we are wrestling against, look at this list here. We're, listed, we're wrestling against principalities, arches, these old enemies, against powers, exousia. Exousia means they have the right. God has turned this kingdom over to Satan. He is the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. This is who he is. He's the ruler, the cosmic ruler of darkness of this present age. And he's in heavenly places, in heavenly spheres. You know what? You and I know the one who's been set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, far above all principalities, all might, all powers, every dominion, and every single name that's going to be named. That's our Savior. And when we're wrestling against this unseen enemy, that's who our king is. Verse 13. Therefore, another reason, take up the whole armor of God, and here's the result or the purpose clause, that you may be, may be able to withstand in the evil day. The direct article, the evil day. And I don't think he's just talking about the end times. Because this was written, obviously, 2,000 years ago, right? But the minute Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, the last days began then. John wrote, it is the last hour. And many antichrists have been manifested. There is an antichrist who is coming, and that may be part of the evil day, but you and I are going to have the evil day come in our lives when temptation hits you like never before. When discouragement just out of the, out of the blue just comes and, and smacks you in the face. When you get hurt by those who that you love. Satan loves nothing more to take those times of discouragement, maybe financially, maybe emotionally, maybe physically. You go in and you get a diagnosis. You need to be able to stand on those evil days when the temptation just to quit, the temptation to give in to, to the flesh, and having done all. So I'm fighting an unseen enemy, and there are some times in my life where Satan just comes at me with a relentless, vicious hatred because Jesus is the one he hates, and he 
hates us because we are his children. Be able to stand on that evil day. Have the entire, the panoplia. Ana lambano is the word to take up. Ana means again and again and again. Again and again and again. Take up. It's an imperative command. Keep taking it up. Keep taking it up. Point number two. Our armor goes on before the battle begins. You ever see a soldier wait until he got in the middle of the battle and starts putting his armor on? <laughs> My son, he's got all this you know, stuff, and he showed it to me in, in, in his spare room when he lived in San Diego. And I mean, it, it's, a, it's a panoply, a panoply. <laughs> it is, I mean, it's vast. And he would tell me how he would put each piece in. And then he would, and his team would start their, their pursuit in, in Afghanistan. They didn't wait until they got into the firefight and said, well, where's my helmet? And no, many Christians, we do that, don't we? We wait until the middle of the attack, the fiery missiles are coming at us, and we're saying, what did I do with my shield? I want you, I want you to, we're going to look at four words here really quickly. They're all past tense participles. They're in the middle voice. I'll explain what that means. But look at chapter, uh, uh, verse 13, the end of the verse. It's having, that's passive. It's past tense. Having what? Having done all. That's the first one. Verse 14, having girded. Verse 14 again, having put on. Verse 15, having shod. I hope you're using a good old King James Bible or a new King James Bible because they're very literal. And there's a reason why I like those translations because it gives you an idea of a repeated thing four times. Having done all. Having put on. Having shod. What was the other one? Having, thank you, Tracy, girded. That's a repetition. I think Paul is trying to tell us something. Those are past tense. In other words, what he's saying, if you haven't done these things first, you will never stand. These things have to come first. You have to have put it all on. You have to have girded yourself. You have to put on the, the, the breastplate. You have to put on the shoes, the sandals of the gospel. And when you do those things, you are able to stand. Preparation starts before the battle begins. Having fully accomplished every detail, stand, having girded. So now let's look at each one of these, these words. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace. Having girded your waist with truth. Now what kind of truth is, is Paul getting at here? Most of the time, I think, when I look at this verse, I'm thinking, having my girded myself with, with, with biblical truth. That is certainly a part of it. But every one of these words has two aspects. The second aspect that most of the time we overlook is that I have got to have a life of impeccable integrity. Satan will take you to task. I've watched Christian after Christian who was loose with their words, who lacked 
complete honesty in areas of their life. And it has unraveled them. And if I want to stand against Satan, I have got to be a man of my word. Let my yes mean yes. Let my no mean no. And anything outside of that is the area of sin. God forbid that I ever have to get to the place and say, well, I swear. That's what it says in, the book, in Matthew's gospel. And the one who does that has to do that because he has to buffet his word because he's so unreliable and so untrustworthy. If you want to fight Satan, be a man, be a woman of integrity, of impeccable character. How do we fight the devil? It's with honesty. This is what Paul told Timothy. Now, the purpose of the commandment is a pure heart, honest, integrity. Blessed are what? The pure in heart. The people with integrity, the people with honesty, they will see God. And I've got to gird myself with an honest lifestyle, reliable, trustworthy, people that can put their confidence in you, a good conscience, sincere faith from which some have turned aside, have now turned to idle talk. James says it like this, if you seem to be religious, my brethren, and you don't bridle your own tongue, how does he describe your religion? Useless. It's in vain. And Satan knows that. And he will attack us there. So I've got to have honesty on. The next thing that he says is righteousness. Again, two aspects of righteousness. And sometimes we overemphasize the first one to the exclusion of the practical one. I have to have the righteousness of Christ. And that is imputed to us by faith. There's nothing I can do to earn righteousness with God. That is a gift. It is imputed. God takes your faith and he imputes you with the righteousness of Jesus. And I fight Satan saying, Satan, you can't come after me because when you see me, you see the righteousness, you see the perfection of Jesus. But it can't stop there. We have got to live righteously daily. Because if we're not, again, Satan doesn't care that I got saved when I was 17 years old and I've got imputed righteousness. If I am living like a derelict right now, Satan could care less. In fact, he loves that and he's going to laugh at me. So what do I do? Romans chapter 6 gives us a good idea. Know ye not to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, whether unto sin producing death, or obedience producing righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from your heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to you, you being made free from sin and now become the slave of righteousness. Two things that I want to do for practical righteousness. I yield myself to Jesus every day. I bring myself before him. I said, yes, Lord, I am imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. That is a free gift. But today, God, I am yielding my mind. I'm yielding my feet. I'm yielding my mouth. It is yours. And it needs to be obedient unto you. And I will become a slave of your righteousness today. And Satan will have to flee. I read a quote this week. I can't remember who said it. But he said, Satan trembles at the weakest saint who's on his knees yielding himself to Jesus. What a powerful quote. Satan flees when he sees the weakest saint on his knees 
yielding himself to Jesus. God, I want to yield myself as an obedient servant to righteousness today. The next thing, having our feet shod. Again, preparedness has two ideas. The word preparedness, my Greek kids would know this word, etoimazo. It means to be prepared. And the word prepared one, one has two meanings. One is like a platform that you stand firmly on that you don't slip. I need to stand firmly on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know who I am today. I love what Paul said. I used to think this was a hymn until I started reading my Bible. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. You guys, I'm sorry. But that's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And when I was a kid, I used to think that was a hymn. And then I finally started my, reading my Bible. I said, wow, this is Paul. That's what I love about our hymn writers. They knew their Bibles. For I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed against that day. That is our Savior. And that is the gospel that I'm standing on. I'm prepared to stand because I am standing on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. My feet are standing. I'm prepared. The Roman soldiers, their sandals had nails in them, heels. Because they weren't supposed to retreat. When they moved forward, that's where they stood. This is the analogy that Paul is using, the Roman soldier. And when we move forward, we stand. I can't pronounce this guy's name. He's a historian. Dr. Goers probably could help me out. But it's P-O-L-Y-B-I-U-S. Polybius. I don't know. He was a historian in the first century B.C., before Christ. Right before this was written. And he describes those men who were selected as centurions in the Roman government. They were men of character, men who were not prone to quick decisions, men who stood in the face of the enemy and overwhelming odds who were willing to die and to stand. I believe this is where Paul's getting this. You're to be like this Roman centurion who's on the march, and he doesn't, he doesn't, when that enemy's coming, he's standing on that platform. He is standing against the wilds, and his feet are prepared with the preparation of the gospel, and he's boarding, and he's bringing, what are you and I bringing? We are bringing peace to people. How beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings and publish good news. Let Jerusalem go back and keep its festival feast. Why? Because the enemy has been defeated. That's from Nahum, chapter 1, verse 19. The Assyrian army is gone. I'm going to obliterate the Assyrians. And the messenger's bringing good news. Now stand on the mountains and bring that peace because Jerusalem is going to keep its celebrated feast. The enemy's been vanquished. And that's what we're to be telling people. The enemy's been vanquished. Jesus Christ will bring you peace. He will bring you joy. He is the victor that overcomes the world, even our faith. Above all things, take the shield of faith. Over all things. Faith is the overarching weapon that welds it all together. This is how we put on our armor. It's through faith. Two aspects again. One is faithfulness. Being faithful. Satan hates a faithful Christian. Why? Be steadfast, unmovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Why does Paul tell them that? Because the verse right before it, verse 9, says that God will, if we are faithful, we will see the fruit of our labors. And we need to be faithful. The shield of faithfulness. When you start something, you follow it all the way through to commitment. Again, Paul wrote to Timothy. And this is what he said to Timothy. Uh, I can't find it, so never mind. (laughs) Uh, But here it is. Be watchful in all things, Timothy. Be faithful. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof. Fulfill. Be faithful to your ministry. Tychicus, last last part of Colossians. Tychicus, the church meets in your home. Be faithful. Fulfill your ministry. The shield of faithfulness. And then the shield of faith. The shield of faith also has the idea that I trust and I believe every one of God's promises. When Satan begins to assault me, I have to take my shield of faith and say, you know what, These fi- the, the, those fiery darts, you know what they were meant to do? They were meant to, to, to get you off balance. They were to, meant to get you distracted. And that's exactly what Satan does. When he shoots those fiery darts against you, he distracts you from what the battle is. He, 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 he gets you off balance. And, and you start saying things and thinking things that you would have never thought. And what you need to do is you need to put up the shield of faith and say, you know what, Lord, I don't believe that lie from the devil. I am God's child. I believe what he says about me, and I'm going to meditate on those things that are true. And I'm going to believe God's promises over Satan's lies. It quenches those, those fiery darts that unsettle you, that get you off balance. They make you act in panic mode, and then you start acting out on your impulses instead of acting out in faith. Raise up that shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is probably the most vital because our head is the most vulnerable. Assurance of salvation, deliverance, and final exaltation is ours. This present suffering is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. That's our hope, isn't it? And I take that because it protects my thoughts. Two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie that we might have strong consolation to have fled to refuge to lay hold on the hope that is set before us, which hope? we have as an anchor for our soul, the helmet of salvation. There's only one offensive weapon listed here, and it's the sword of the Spirit. It's called the sword of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit has inspired this book, isn't it? Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The law of the Lord. How is it described in Psalm 19? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, 
making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Moreover by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. More to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than the honeycomb. That's our offensive weapon. Martin Luther wrote this in his hymn, One Little Word Will Fail Him. That's all it takes is one word from this book, and Satan has to flee. It's so important for us to know this word. Jesus said it three times, and Satan had to relent. Turn these rocks into bread. It is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Cast yourself off the temple. He even quoted Bible to him. If you're the son of God, just do that. He's given his angels charge over you. It is written. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Bow down and worship me. It is written. Have no other gods before me. Jesus took the sword of the Spirit. And then the verse, next verse says, And Satan departed. Satan departed. In my conclusion, I want you this week to pick out one of these things and try to apply it. Maybe this week you're just going to recognize that I am in the spiritual war, that Satan is real, and I'm going to acknowledge that I need the strength of God. Second, maybe you just need to rest in Christ's victory. You know you're in a spiritual battle. You realize that. There's no doubt. You can see it all around your life maybe this week. My challenge is to you this week. Will you rest in Jesus? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He is arisen, isn't he? And we can enter into his victory. Maybe this is something that you need to do this week. Are you living a life of integrity? Are you bringing yourself before God and yielding yourself as a servant of righteousness? Are you a peacemaker? Are you bringing unity? Or are you a peace breaker sowing discord? Do you have unwavering, unwavering faith in the power of prayer and the promises of God? Maybe that's something that you need to do this week. Say, Lord, I need to take this thing to prayer. And I need to raise up my shield of faith that I'm going to believe God for the victory for this thing in my life. Lastly, and hopefully everyone here today is certain of your salvation. Do you know that you've been born again? Can you put on the helmet of salvation? Do you know that Jesus Christ is your Savior? He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life. Maybe this week you may say, and I know I'm talking to the choir here this morning, but I don't know your heart. You do. And God may say, you know what? You need to trust me for your salvation this week. 
the helmet of salvation. Lastly, how important is the Word of God in your life? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the way of sinner. He doesn't sit in the, the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Maybe you haven't even gotten to know your sword. You don't even know what it looks like. Get it out. Begin to study it. Get into a daily reading pattern. If you need some help, please just come and talk to me. I would be more than help, more than, oh, I'd be overjoyed if someone came to me and said, you know what, Pastor, I don't have a daily reading schedule. Can you help me with that? That is your sword. I'm inviting you today to respond to God's Word, especially before we observe the Lord's Supper this morning. Let's go to prayer. Father, God, we do have an unseen enemy, and we have got every available instrument. And Lord Jesus, you took our sin and you nailed it to the cross. Therefore, we have your righteousness. But not only did you nail our sin to the cross, you spoiled, disarmed principalities and powers by making a public demonstration of your power, triumphing over them in the cross. Father, today I pray that we will avail ourselves to your weaponry, truthfulness, practical righteousness, having the gospel to stand on and to take it forward, a helmet that is secure in the hope of our salvation. Lord God, I pray that we won't leave any implement out of our armor because Satan knows exactly where to attack. attack. God, help us to do all. And having done all, let us stand steadfast for Your kingdom, for our brothers, for your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.